0: You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our sermon text this morning comes from
1: Acts chapter 12. Nope. Acts chapter 13, verse 26 to 41. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of the salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and he appeared for for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. For God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. You are my God, today I have become your father. As to his ra- raising from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your holy ones see decay. For David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and decayed. But the holy, but the God, but the one God raised him up not to decay. Therefore let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him, from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So beware that that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away. Because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. This is God's word. Be
0: to God. Happy Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. He is, he is risen, risen indeed. Mm. If you uh, have your Bibles with you, we're in Acts. We actually continuing through our. Is it on? I can speak louder. It doesn't matter. We're in Acts chapter 13. We're continuing through a series on Acts that we started uh, several weeks ago. We normally walk through books of the Bible. By God's providence, um, um, we were looking at the passages and we find ourselves in a sermon that Paul's preaching in which last week he's talking about the promises uh, and, and the gifts and grace and faithfulness of God to his people. On Palm Sunday, we were talking about the fact that Christ came as a good and grace and mercy from God, yet was rejected. Uh, in the same way that so many were rejected through history, and Paul continues his sermon on through the second half, in which he begins to focus himself in on the death and the resurrection of Christ. So we're going to stay in Acts because Paul is speaking to us in Acts, and by God's providence, we're here with him uh, to hear his word. So if you would, uh, if you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't, and you uh, on the seats in front of you, we actually have Bibles underneath them available. We'd love for you to follow that along, but. Um, Pray with me now that the spirit would be with us and lead us this morning. <coughs> Father, this morning we're grateful for the privilege it is to worship you and Lord to celebrate the resurrection of the king. Lord, that he has come as a simple baby and laid down his life for us and that we can celebrate not only did he die, but he also raised again and that now sits at your right hand, ruling and reigning. Lord, encourage our hearts this morning to celebrate in that, to have confidence in the one true king that we know we follow, and we ask all this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem as a celebrated king, only to be put to death by the end of that same week. The only charge that they could bring was that he claimed to be the son of God. A charge of blasphemy. They took it to the Romans, but the Romans didn't want to kill him. Pilate knew he hadn't done anything to warrant death. He had him beaten to appease the religious rulers who wanted him dead, just hoping that would be enough. But when it was clear that they would settle for no less, really truly to avoid riot, because he's a ruler who doesn't want his 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 rule to go up in chaos, Pilate literally washed his hands of the situation and handed him over to be crucified. They hung the innocent king of glory on a tree until he died. Buried in a tomb on a Friday, but he did not stay there. God raised him up again, and that's what we celebrate today. That Jesus Christ is the resurrected king. Now some see this not more than really a mythic tale. Others talk about this resurrection really more even as a metaphor, you know, for maybe like how, like Jesus, we also need to die to our inhuman behaviors and resurrect to live as better humans. But these perspectives seem really to be just most unsettled by the idea of the miraculous, that anybody might rise from the dead that we know of not one other example of actual resurrection, so is it likely that Jesus did that? But that's the point. The point is that God demonstrated his power over life and death in Christ, that no one else holds that power, and that only he alone is able to conquer death. See, it's not that most... Scientific community would is, uh, or have a problem with a miracle, it's just they only want to get one. Ethnobotanist Terence McKenna, in a talk he gave once, was quoted as saying that modern science is based on the principle that give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. The one free miracle is the appearance of the, all the mass and energy in the universe and all the laws that govern it in a single instant from nothing. Then we can take over from here. It's even more than that, to be honest with you. It's not, it's not only that something came from nothing, but that order came from chaos, that life came from non-life, that consciousness came from non-consciousness, that transcendence, awareness of ourselves came from that consciousness. All those things point to an intelligence, and we would say that God, in his creative power, brought life out of nothing. And if God can bring life out of nothing, he has the power to bring Jesus back to new life. According to Paul in his first letter, for us who are believers in his first letter to the Corinthians, if Christ was not raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. So believers, for us, really the foundation of our belief in God and his power of salvation is in the resurrection and hinges there. It's only in the resurrection that we can confidently put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And Paul, as he turns his sermon, wants to ensure all his listeners, see what he says, Abraham's seed, those who are Abraham's and also those who are fearing God. He talks about those among us who fear God. That means those are Gentiles, those are non-Jews and Jews together. He's talking to all people and saying, I want you to have confidence in Christ and the power of his resurrection. And so what we want to look together at in this passage. I want us to walk through and see where Paul points to four important reasons that we can confidently put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And the first is this, that the resurrected Jesus fulfills God's promise. Okay, from the beginning in the garden, God's word has been questioned. Whether he is faithful to fulfill what he says, whether what he says is good and right and true. Creative The creation comes into play. Adam and Eve have everything they need. God says everything's very good. Man's got his wife. The wife has her husband. They all have the world. And God says, be fruitful and multiply. And then comes temptation that says, did God really say So from the beginning, God's word has been questioned, and God has given his promise to say that even as men and women fell in the garden into sin, that he would make a way of restoration, where he said, I will send a one, a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent, meaning he will crush this sin and death. And Paul is trying to reiterate for his listeners over and over again that everything that happens is something that God said would happen. It's his promise. Look at Acts 13, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. What he's saying is that the people who were in Israel, those who were Jewish rulers and those who were Romans, have fulfilled the words of, of promise the words that were promised beforehand would happen and how did they do it well actually the jewish rulers he says should have recognized him and his sayings because it's in the word they read it every sabbath every sabbath matter of fact if you read in isaiah 53 7 through 12 let me read to you the words from the old testament given by isaiah himself in chapter 53 he was a frat he was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely." When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. And therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels." That's Old Testament, guys. That's half a millennium before Christ shows up on the scene. And I would say if you read this to any person not familiar with this text in the Bible, they would probably say it's from the New Testament, because Isaiah speaks of the servant who will be slain for what the sin of many. And yet, as Paul says, not recognizing him like they should, they fulfilled those words. How did they do it? They found no grounds for the death sentence, and they asked Pilate to still kill him. In 29, when they had carried out all that had been written about him, Paul again saying all this had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But... God raised him from the dead, and he appeared for many days to those who came up from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you what? The good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. The promise that was made. Jesus fulfills the promise of God. There's a simple phrase that we repeated often with our kids from a very young age. I think it's songs now. They have songs for this. God always keeps his promises. God promised to defeat the serpent in the garden. God promised to bless the nations through the descendants of Abraham. God promised to establish a descendant of David on the throne. God promised that when, that when that Messiah was killed, he would bear the sins of many. And some of you have trouble trusting anyone outside of yourself. You've been hurt. Maybe you've been let down. Maybe you've been abandoned. But God has demonstrated his faithfulness to his promise. And though it be difficult to, 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 to trust others in this world, I promise you that you can have confidence in God's word. God has demonstrated his faithfulness. Believers, no matter how difficult the faith, uh, how difficult this life is, he'll never leave you or forsake you. Believers, Jesus says he will be with you always. All things work together for good for those called according to his purpose. In any trial, in any, any challenge, in any temptation, he has promised to be with his people. He has not withheld his son from us. What good thing would he keep from you? So we can confidently put our faith in Jesus because God always keeps his promises. Not only that, but we can see the resurrected Jesus displays God's power. Verse 30 and 32. God raised him from the dead, and he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. See, and know that he's pointing out that Jesus shows up, not in secret in his resurrection, but rather publicly. He walks with people. He visits with his disciples. Paul says later in, in his letters that Jesus shows up to over 500 different people at the time. Author and theologian uh, N.T. Wright points to these examples as the most compelling argument for the historical resurrection: that many of these witnesses were willing to swear by what they saw all the way to their death; that that there was an empty tomb. That, you know, if the opposers of God's people wanted to, they could just walk to the tomb and say, "There he is," but they never did because there was an empty tomb. And that also so many Jews turned to follow Jesus and died swearing by seeing that resurrected Messiah. God's power is on display in him. And if you think for a moment, well, we can rewrite history. Can't we look back at this and there's disagreement? Do you know how many people today look at viral videos online and have different opinions about the same thing? Like, like, like seriously, even throughout history, the people come with evidence of things and say, oh, well, it didn't happen because this, because retroactively, you know, anachronistically, the word for that, historically? Well, in this case, we look at this and see the example of their life. Who, who is it that would lay their life down willingly all the way to the grave because they saw a resurrected king and someone says, hey, just recant that? And like, you know what? I like to stick with the lie. I'll stick to it. None of us so we can confidently put our faith in Jesus because God's power and authority in this world is on display in him. And it's shown to so many witnesses. Third, the resurrected Jesus can be trusted because he defeats God's enemies. He defeats God's enemies. He doesn't just go to his death silently, but rather he takes out and conquers in his death. Do you you realize that? Do you realize what he takes care of in this? Look at the passage in verse 33. Enemies, God takes care of his enemies through Christ in heaven and on earth. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I become your father. Now that kind of sounds funny, right? If we would argue that Jesus is the son of God from the beginning, why all of a sudden is God saying, Oh, hey, what's up? You're my son. I'm gonna, I'll acknowledge that. But you have to understand the context of why he's saying this. It's an installment of authority is what it is. He is taking who is Christ and saying, you have authority over these things. You are my son. Today I become your father because in your authority, you are my son. And it comes from Psalm 2. Maybe you're not familiar with Psalm 2. It's known as the psalm that's the coronation of the son or the coronation of the king. Psalm 2 is about the rulers of this world and the nations raging against God and him saying, guys, come on, what are you doing? I'm God. It quite literally is. It says he laughs at them. I'll read it to you from verse one. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's, what are they conspiring to do? It says they're conspiring this way. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. Let's free ourselves from God and his anointed one. Verse four, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them what are you guys doing? I'm the good and holy God. Why do you think you can push my authority off? Why do you think you can rebel and do what you want? Literally, rebellion in this world is the the result we see around us. We see the devastation and the brokenness is because of rebellion. And he wouldn't be a good God if he looked at this world and all that's broken in it and say, huh, guess that's how it's gonna be. Best of luck to you. But instead, he looks at those who have caused that chaos and says, I will crush you because you will not bring chaos to my good creation. So what does he do? He speaks to them in anger and terrifies them and says this, verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. Paul is assigning to Jesus this very psalm that the authority of all the nations will be in his hand and he is established (laughs) on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. He's destroying God's enemies, both in heaven and on earth. And I say in heaven and on earth because we see earlier in this passage that, that men who are in Rome, both the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders, are working together to conspire to put King Jesus to death. So it's men on earth that are doing this. We have enemies who oppose Christ here on earth, yes. But Paul reminds us that we don't only wrestle against flesh and blood. And in the Gospels, it says when Judas left to betray Jesus, that Satan enters him. That that means that the deceiver, the accuser, those who are opposing Christ from the beginning, those who want to, as in Psalm 2 say, throw off the ropes of God's authority, are also working together with men on this earth to conspire against them. Not necessarily knowingly. I don't think the guys who are Jews are like, hey, let's go talk and see what Satan wants. But he has their ear. Because we want and our desire in this world is different from what God wants often. And we're willing to hear the temptation. And we're willing to follow. And those who want to plot against the anointed one like this see those men in Rome and say, they want power, they want authority. Hey, I have an idea. You should put this guy to death. So they did. But as Paul tells us here, that God has shown his authority in the Son. By putting them to open shame. Putting them to open shame. Isn't that what, what Satan thought he would tempt Jesus with in, the, in the, the wilderness? If you remember the story, he goes off into the wilderness and Satan takes him up to look out and says, Hey, I'll give you all this if you just worship me. Because in some weird, twisted way, Satan believes he has some authority. God says, no, it's not yours. My son in death is going to take it all from you and rule and reign and crush the enemies that are in heaven and earth. There are some of you who may wrestle with some guilt or shame in your life, some way about your life that you've led or about the way that sin in your life you currently struggle against. And if you're a believer, grief over sin and repentance are good things so i encourage you to turn and obey but guilt and shame before god are from satan friend that 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 to be accused of anything shameful before god where he cannot forgive you of that is is from the enemy not from him that in christ we can come boldly before the throne of grace and receive mercy that as a community of faith, we don't have to be ashamed of our lives, but rather we can glory together that Christ has died for it all, and we can be changed by him. There's no longer condemnation for those in Christ. So if the enemy is working to accuse, he's only working in the background to try to demoralize you and to shift you off of the mission that which is God has sent us here for. I'm going to tell you, man, you're free from that. You should be free from that. You could come boldly to the throne and lay that at the foot of the cross and be free from that because the enemy has no accusation. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against spirits and unseen evil. The ploys of God's enemies are just a last-ditch effort of the walking dead. (laughs) They have no success in view. Matter of fact, when Jesus came down to cast out demons, there's a story where he shows up and the demon's like, have you come now to destroy us? Like, they know it's coming. That's telling. Like, like we know our time's limited. Are you here for that now? Is that what you're doing? Mm-hmm. So we can see God's power to crush his enemies both on heaven and in earth. But we also see him defeat the enemy of death itself. Look at verse 34. As to raising him from the dead, never to return to decay, He has spoken in this way, I will give you this holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your holy one see decay. For David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. So what's Paul trying to tell them here? Well, Paul's talking about a promise to David that is quoted. He quotes the Old Testament over and over again, that you won't see decay. But what he's trying to demonstrate is that that promise couldn't have been to David, himself, personally, because guess where he is? He's in the ground decaying. It's the same thing Peter says earlier in Acts in his sermon. But rather, this promise is to the descendant of David who is Christ, because his body did not see decay. That holy one didn't see decay because when he went to death, God raised him back to life. Death is not the end. And so we can have hope because we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We don't see death in this life of believers and say this is the end, it's terminal, you're done. But Christ has conquered death in his resurrection and that as death is not the end in Christ, we will always also be resurrected on the last day. And boy, that's what a promise because these decaying bodies are gonna be replaced. If anybody knows... Me, this last couple weeks, I've been somewhat depressed because my body is decaying rapidly. <laughs> it's like, what happened? Why are you walking funny? Well, I tried to pick up a pen off the ground and uh, threw out my back. I don't know. I'm, I'm not even, I mean, it's been miraculous, the number of things, one after the other that have occurred. And it's been easy to be down in the dumps over that. But it's not only that we get a new body, but that Christ he conquers death at all. All of it is, is, is to done away with in him. That he has the power and authority to overcome and not to be held by the grave. That's the only thing the enemy has against you. It's death. And Jesus tells his followers, don't fear those who only can kill the body because they really have no power at all over the soul. So he defeats the enemies of God on heaven and heaven and on earth. He defeats death on the cross, and he also defeats sin, finally, in verse 38 and 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him, from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. See, in Christ's death, he puts to death your sin. I I don't know if we really capture the totality of that. That as he dies, he willingly took on the wrath that was for us. That not only has he totally defanged the enemy of Satan and all his effects, and not only has he made a promise that death is not eternal, but that all of the guilt and shame and the really literally chains of sin have been freed. Do you understand? Outside of Christ, we are but bondage to our desires in the flesh. That that the will of what we do is, is what the will of our flesh is. And even when often things we do outwardly look good to the world, our motives are bent. Maybe I help that little lady across the street because I want to make sure people see me and do a good job. Just saying. It's about me. Maybe I'm preparing this sermon up here because I want to have a platform and I want to have you say, hey, Chad, great job. Wonderful. Maybe we live our life in a way that glorifies us or makes us look better or makes us feel better about the way that we live. But in Christ, he can put together, he can put to death all of those desires so that every moment of our life is rather done to the glory of his name. Paul wrote a letter to the Romans, and in chapter six, he talks about this very thing where he says in verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God so you too consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any part of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law but under grace. Because in Christ's death, he has defeated sin and all its power over you. you. You no longer have shame before God, but rather you stand in the righteousness of Christ and can boldly bring that sin honestly before him and help and walk in light of the Son who can help you defeat sin and put it to death. Crush that sin in your life. Finally, the resurrected Jesus makes a way of salvation. I mean, ultimately, we can trust in Jesus as Savior because in the resurrection, he makes a way of salvation available for us. And he does it in really what I see here, two different ways that Paul points to, both from something and into something. Often when we talk about salvation, the temptation is to consider that it's really only a ticket into heaven, that it's really only a pass out of hell. And we could talk all day long about what those things really mean, but I promise you this, it is not God's intent just simply to make a way of salvation, to scoop you off of the earth and get you out of the path of danger and hell, but rather to give you real life. That salvation has impacts today. And Paul warns them first, though, that salvation is from God's wrath, and rightfully so. The passage he quotes in verse 40 and 41 is from Habakkuk, and he says this, Beware that when it's said of the prophets, does not happen to you. And what does the prophet say? Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away, because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you'll never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. Now, here's a danger of verses out of context. I've seen this like on a coffee cup. Okay this particular verse, in the context of, listen, I'm going to tell you what, God's doing a work you'll never believe, even if somebody told you. So look out, here comes God's amazing work in your life. Now here's the problem of the context. The next passage in Habakkuk is about the Chaldeans coming in and destroying and taking into slavery all the Jews. So beware, God's going to do a work in your life. Just watch for the northern invaders. Here they come. You won't believe it. Here comes Canada. And we wouldn't believe that. (laughs) That would be fitting for this passage. Wow, the Canadians are coming. (laughs) What he's really telling them is, look, you guys scoff at me and say, God's not here. God's not doing anything. He's not stopping us from doing whatever we want to do. He's not stopping the evil that my neighbor's doing. Where is he? He's gone. The scoffers mocking and saying, where is God? And all of this that's going on, clearly he doesn't either care or doesn't exist. Paul reminds us like Habakkuk, be careful because I'm doing a work, a work that you'll never believe even if someone were to explain it to you. Primarily that Paul is, telling us like he does in Romans not to despise the riches of his kindness because though it may seem like he tarries now his kindness and his restraint and his patience is intended to lead you to repentance while there's time I I said this earlier and I think I can say it rightfully because scripture attests to this that he would not be a good God if he did not do something about evil in this world. But his timing is not ours. His patience is, is merciful and kind. But Paul warns those who are listening to not be like those scoffers who think he's not doing something about it. And it's the same warning for us. Because if you were being honest, you would say the same thing. We are made in his image in our capacity for love, our instinct for justice, our desire to see people cared for and not harmed, to hear something radical like a shooting in a school and have, and have your heart broken, to think, my, my son was nine and just turned 10, and they lost three of them in Nashville, and that was just one. And what the most innocent life we can think of in this world, a child. And that is probably, that is really literally the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the vast amount of evil that you and I are unaware of in this world. That we only hear flashes of in the news. Honestly, when I was a kid, I think the streets were probably more dangerous, but we were just let to go free and roam around the world. Okay, I'm just serious. We would go everywhere. Honestly, I'm surprised. I probably, I will get to heaven, one of my questions will say, God, how many times was I almost kidnapped? Because I don't know, and it'd be fascinating to hear the stats. I'm just, I think about those things. Okay, all right. But, but when we... We see, like, over the course of time, we get a 24-hour news cycle, and it just bombards you with things that are happening. All of a sudden, my wife and I have kids, and we have, like, 12, 13, 14, when they're in their teens, and we're like, I don't know. We don't want to let you outside by yourself. Because we just imagine it's happening all the time. And I I think it really is true stats that it's actually safer now. I I don't know for a fact, but I don't feel like it. I'm like, no, don't leave the house. I'll be with you. I don't know what I'm going to do different. Well... I know what I would do if it was a situation, but let's talk about that later. But in this case, we can't, think about that. Think about how that affects us with more news of evil in that only percentage of an amount. God has an unfiltered view 24-7. And I think he has a right to be angry. And a good God does something about it. And the beauty of Christ and his resurrection is that even though he is waiting to unleash his wrath on all Satan, sin, and death, and evil in this world, he's made a way. He's told you and I, he doesn't want to pour that out on you and offers a way of escape. He says, put your trust in Christ because in, in Christ, you don't have to bear my, my wrath. He did it you. And now the accuser has no word to say about you because it's been done and you are justified before me. See that? The previous passage? Everyone who believes is justified through him, from everything that could not be justified through the law of Moses. Meaning your good works aren't enough. I'm just trying to safeguard your life and show you a way and a way to live. But really, ultimately, the only hope you have is in Christ himself. And that through him, if you believe and trust in that and you're willingly following and you turn, the word repent is to turn and face, meaning all of the idols, all the things that you have worshipped, all the things that you put your hope in, all of those things that you believed would be a salvation in this world. Believe me, your heart believes that. It sees hope in that. You go after what you want. Instead, you turn from that and say, Jesus is really ultimately all I need he's my hope and my salvation when you do that the promise is that there is there is salvation and you are justified in your belief in him and my wrath's not for you but not only does he save us from the wrath of god does he take that wrath for us but he promises and moves us into god's family You're not just the outsider who's like, great, you don't get my wrath, but you're welcomed into the family of God and made a part of God's family. In that passage, in verse 39, he makes a reference to the law of Moses. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. The law of Moses was given to God's people in the Old Testament. The law of Moses was given as a distinctive to bring them and set them apart from all other nations as God's rightful inheritance. Really, he calls Israel his son. But what Paul is doing as he proclaims this very um, word of salvation to not only Abraham and the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, but also to all the Gentiles, he's saying this has not only been for Jews. Instead, the nations are supposed to be blessed through Christ. The blessings have always been for all people. He told Abraham from the beginning, Through your seed I will bless the nations, all the world. It's never been a one ethnicity thing. And so that God's family has been opened up to graft in and adopt those who were not his people. He says, You're not my people? No, you are my people. I like what N.T. Wright actually says about the resurrection. Because I think when we look at salvation and we look at um, salvation in Christ and believing, we often consider only the future of what that means, that Christ is sweeping us away. This is his quote. That Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. That new project is not to snatch people away from the earth to heaven. It's not that we sit and wait and say, hey, it's over. Good, I got you. But to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That as we are in God's family, we bring heaven into this earth. Isn't that what Jesus prayed? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So salvation offers us not only escape from God's rightful wrath, but brings us into God's family. Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. God always keeps his promises. By his power, God raised Jesus and defeated Satan, sin, and death, and he now holds out salvation to you and to I. You and me. Will you put your faith in the resurrected king? Unbelievers, this is not a one-time plan of salvation. It's a life living in the family of the king. Don't be like the scoffers who despise the kindness of God. Trust in the saving work of Christ. Believers, you're in the family of God. Hollow his name. My prayer for us is that his will would be done in your life. That his kingdom would come on earth as in heaven. That we would live as kingdom people who follow the resurrected king. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the opportunities to worship you and lift up your son. God, even as you raised him up in power, let your spirit fill us and change us as we continue in worship of the resurrected King and remind us not only today, but day after day, that we worship a King who has been risen in power, that you always keep your promises and we can trust you and Lord, we can have confidence in the resurrected King for our Lord as our Lord and Savior. And God, that every moment of every day, we not look after our own desires in this life, but rather turn and follow after him. Make us more like Christ. Encourage our hearts. And Lord, knit our hearts together as the family of God. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.